are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitaite, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly listeners and to the live audience that is in attendance. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wisco Weekly. I'm your host, Dennis Wisco, and I have been waiting for this recording, this live recording, this episode for the last week or so. I literally could not sleep last night. It was like it was like I was a little kid, and it was Halloween the next day, and I was so excited to wear my outfit. And that's what I feel about this episode today. Men, women, and children, you are in for a treat. With so many things going on in the world, I know that I've had several discussions that I'm sure all of us have several discussions personally and professionally with people that have problems and problems begetting problems and problems compounding problems. And I was so excited to meet the guest that I have today because he is a world-class problem solver. And sometimes really what it takes to problem solve is just another way, just for someone else to tell you that, hey, I think you should be thinking about these problems just in a slightly different way. And, and, And that's all it really takes. So men, women, and children, on today's show, we have a global speaker, a TEDx speaker. He's taught at some of the best universities in the world, Columbia University, London Business School, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, Tel Aviv University. And he's here to share with us some tips and tricks about problem solving. So please welcome to the show, Mr. Erez Tzalik. Mr. Tzalik, how are you, sir? Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, sir, I appreciate you coming to us live from Tel Aviv, Israel. That's amazing. Uh, thank God for technology these days. Otherwise, we couldn't get some of the magic that you're going to be sprinkling sprinkling upon us uh, on today's show. Uh, Mr. Tzalik, uh, before we begin, um, how can people follow you? Uh, I think the easiest way uh, will be to follow uh, my LinkedIn profile. That's Erez Tzalik on LinkedIn. Uh, and the SAT website. We'll, we'll mention that maybe a little later, but uh, SAT is the company that I work for and uh, part of that that magic, most of this magic is actually done uh, uh, as a team and not as individuals. So that would be a good course. Yeah, which makes the most sense. And by the way, for those of you that's joining us on this live recording, I hope you have a coffee in hand. This this is going to be a conversation that can go very wide and very deep. So just sit back and relax. If you have a pen and notebook, that even helps. Because this is a live recording, if there is any kind of lost connection, just kind of forgive us and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll work through it. And if you do have questions, you can either uh, type it in or raise your hand. And again, depending on how deep and wide we go, uh, we may, may get to a point in the middle of the conversation that we do open it up for questions. But certainly towards the very end, if you have some questions that you would like to ask, Mr. Salik, you're more than welcome to do so. Uh, so before, I, you know... There's there 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 is some additional content out there uh, on you, Erez, in which they people can get to know you in that sense. But I always find that the best way people can get to know my guests is just to simply talk and share with us some of your words and wisdom. So the company that you work for is Systematic Inventive Thinking. I think in order to lay the foundation of some of the problems that we're going to get to today, maybe you could describe for us what is SIT, and then we can at least have a baseline uh, from here. 
happily. So SAT is one of the first companies in the world uh, specializing in the field of innovation, more than 25 years. Back when innovation was a term that you need to explain uh, to others what it stands for. Uh, and SAT is also the name of the unique methodology that we develop and we're using alongside with other uh, tools and models and, and, and systems in the, in the field of creativity, innovation, and problem solving. Um, so it's a small international company um, uh, with time and, uh, and diversity. We were able to reach to more than 70 countries, more than 1,400 uh, companies around the world. So the accumulated um, experience and knowledge is very, very useful. You understand in, in the world of uh, innovation, you understand what sounds great and works great, what sounds great and doesn't really work so well, um, what are the uh, business-related, industry-related, or culture-related differences between the way you apply innovation successfully in one part of the world or in one industry uh, versus another. Um, and more than anything else, it gives you an opportunity to continuously sharpen your skills and tools and abilities by, by uh, collecting those insights. And so um, the, you have that, um, there are two, you have two principles of SIT. Let's see, we have root cause and UDP. Okay, so I thought I was mentioning these two, uh, these two approaches because we're gonna to talk today about problem solving. And I think that when it comes to problem solving, there are a few points that, uh, that needs to be uh, mentioned. One, um, we're not well trained to deal with problems. Most of the engineers in the world getting their certification without uh, completing successfully problem solving uh, uh, training. Um, so the, everybody learns the basics, you know, uh, 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 fishbone and root cause analysis, and we all know that. Um, but other than that, we don't have the right skill set to deal with the problems that, that we, we encounter every day in our work, and we rely only on our intuition, intelligence, and experience that in some cases could be very useful. Uh, but when you study uh, solutions that perceived as not only good solutions, but also very creative or very innovative, you realize that they're actually counterintuitive. They're actually the opposite of what you bring with you to the room when you enter. So one thing that, that is important to take into consideration is that we need to have some good tools and techniques uh, to apply when, when dealing with problems. Otherwise, our, our solutions will still stay in, in the context of you know, common sense. Um, the second thing is that uh, culturally, we tend to uh, confuse sometimes between observations and problems. We would say, for example, oh, we have a, a problem. The company is losing market share. Now, for me, this is an observation. This is not a problem. I wouldn't know where to start from. But when you look, when you take a second look and you ask yourself, hold on. For a moment, I don't want to call, I don't want to focus on the observation. I don't want to focus on the cause, and I'll explain why in a minute. I just want to focus on the damage, the negative consequences, because if I can eliminate the negative outcomes, then I don't care about the problem. Um, in other words, um, in two, there are three good ways of solving a problem. The first way that we all do, again, intuitively, is identifying the cause and trying to eliminate it. This is what, what we call in the world of engineering root cause analysis. When you can do that, that's great. Do it. Many times, um, 
the cause of the problem uh, is something that is either negative and positive at the same time, and you can't yeah. really get rid of yeah. it, or it's necessary, and you can't, can't get rid of it. So root cause analysis in these cases will not be a very useful approach. Um, at SAT, we use a, another uh, approach, a very different approach, and it's important to say that it's not better or worse, it's just a different approach, um, that instead of focusing on the cause, we look at the negative consequences and we try to eliminate those, and we do that in a very systematic and disciplined manner. Originally, it comes from the world of trees, for those of you who are familiar with this um, uh, originally Russian problem-solving uh, technique, um, but after some adaptations to the SAT world, uh, now it's something that can be learned within 20 minutes and apply within another 15 minutes. It's, it's that simple. It's just a, it's just a different way um, to create or a more useful way to create uh, what we call a new type of uh, problem formulation. So, it, so it is, if, if, so if I understand correctly, then I'm, and, and I'll use a sports metaphor here. So if, if I'm on a team and there is, you know, we're, we're on a, on a string of, of losing 10 games in a row and we could see that there are some chemistry problems. So there could be the root analysis that's, you know, there's, there's turmoil amongst the team, teammates aren't getting along. And so therefore, if we could fix the chemistry, then we could play better together, we could win games. But one of the negative consequences, if I am playing together with this team, and I'm, I'm, let's say playing basketball, if we're missing a lot of shots, then that could be the negative consequence of the chemistry problem. So if we kind of just fix the negative consequence, the fact that I'm missing a lot of shots, that could, in effect, solve the problem. Is that is that a fairly that's simple? A good, that's a good example. Yes, yes, absolutely. That that's a good example. Okay. Um, so, I, I said earlier that there are three ways to solve a problem, and unfortunately, most of us only use one. Now, these three ways are equally good, and in the world of a problem solving solver, uh, your worst nightmare is getting stuck. Your worst nightmare is feeling that you exhaust all possibilities, and you know there's nowhere to go. And the name of the game here is creating alternatives, creating more ways of attacking the problem. So if, if eliminating the cause doesn't work, then you have two other good ways to, to experiment with. So the first one, as I mentioned, is, uh, is, is dealing with the cause. The second one uh, is disconnecting the cause and the negative effect. Okay? So okay. chemistry will still be bad among players, but it will not affect the score at the end of the game, okay? And a third way to approach a problem is to actually reverse the relationships. You try to imagine a situation when, okay, it sounds really bad, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm sticking to the analogy. Okay. Um, uh, the more dramatic and problematic the relationships between the players will get, the higher the score will get. Okay? okay. Now, again, intuitively, we, we, we can't consider that. It doesn't feel right. But, yeah. again, when you study ideas or solutions that are perceived by experts as innovative, you find these two, two phenomena uh, happening all, all the time. Okay? Ignoring the cause, or maybe not ignoring, but leaving the cause as it is, but instead dealing with the consequences. And sometimes we have more influence or more control over the negative consequences uh, 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 versus the uh, influencing the cause. Okay. Okay. So, 
at SIT, what we do is we use all three approaches, which means, again, that we're open uh, ourselves and, and the teams we work with to, you know, two, two new families of solutions that normally you would not even consider. Okay. So let's, okay, so now we have a baseline here now. So let's, let's actually address the first problem here. Um, and so listeners and viewers, if you guys get the chance, this was actually a really good short video. It's about 11 minutes long, but uh, again, Erez uh, did this TEDx talk and you can YouTube this, the advantage of thinking inside the box. And I think we're gonna even get to this a little bit later or, or maybe even sooner. All right, so here's the first problem that we're gonna be dealing with. Small businesses have the opportunity to keep their business afloat by securing federal dollars under the Paycheck Protection Program. While these loans may be forgiven after a period of time, this also presents an opportunity for businesses to consider eliminating waste and inefficiencies. But in doing so, this may come at the expense of continued revenue loss, employee loss, and a slow path to recovery. Erez, you are trying to solve the problems of all small businesses, sir. How do you look at this problem? So for me, this problem represents two fascinating areas of innovation and creativity. The first one is fixedness. And fixedness is, is kind of a blind spot uh, in, in the way we think, uh, which is kind of funny because it's a blind spot. And then in that case, it doesn't matter how much uh, you're aware of it or uh, uh, you know how, how much effort you invest in, in trying to change it. You can only three, see through your own eyes. Uh, it's a blind spot and, and it doesn't matter how fast you turn around, it will still be on your back. Um, there are two types of, of fixedness. The first one is acquired fixedness. It's what we picked, uh, picked up along the way. It's part of our education and professional standards and habits and rituals and best practices. And it's something that, that we all have. Um, the other type of fixedness is kind of deeply rooted in the way we think, it's called cognitive fixedness. We actually have four types of cognitive fixedness and it can blind us from, from seeing or considering possibilities that, as I mentioned earlier, are counterintuitive, something that our brain is not trained um, to, to view. And the only way to overcome fixedness is by an external manipulation. So when I hear people encouraging other people to think differently, uh, I usually have this little smile that, that I smile to myself because, you know, um, if I could, I would ask them to show me how. Like, I can think the way I think, and telling me to think differently doesn't, doesn't gear me up with any, any valuable information or know-how. Um, so uh, at, at SAT, we use this systematic approach, and we use these cognitive manipulations. We call them thinking tools because it sounds much nicer. Uh, uh, to kind of force uh, force people to think differently. So it's not about uh, it's not so much about what you think, but it's more about how you think about it. So the way we work solving a problem like this and, and other problems that we're going to discuss very soon um, are actually getting gather a team of experts. We we don't have the the we're not consultant in this field. We're, we we can tell you what you should do. But what we can do is gather a team from the company, uh, people who are experts, um, and facilitate the thinking process that kind of force them to consider possibilities and options 
that otherwise will probably be either overlooked or very quickly dismissed. So fixedness is one of the things that we suffer most when we, when we talk about innovation and creativity. And of course, the older you are, the more senior you are, uh, the more educated you are, the more of an expert you are, the more fixated you are. Um, and it breaks my heart sometimes to see, um, uh, to get a call from, from a client saying, look, we got our best experts in the room. They were sitting there for two days and they couldn't come up with any solution. And, you know, why would you expect them to come up with something, you know, innovative if you get the most fixated people in the organization to try and, and, and solve it? So take the same manpower, the same wisdom, the same knowledge, the same experiences and expertise and provide them with a, with a different thinking tools, then they'll come up with, with usually with really good solutions. So fixedness is one thing that is associated with this. Um, uh, and the other thing that is closely related to these type of question is uh, uh, business model innovation. Uh, again, we're kind of fixated on the way the things works. When you ask business people how business works, usually they'll, they'll say something along the lines of, uh, well, it has some rules. You know, we know how, to, how you do things here and our clients and our uh, supply chain uh, knows this, uh, apply the same rules and this is how, how it works. And then when you ask them to show you the book, they look at you like puzzled, They're like there's no book. These are all, you know, arrangements and agreements and habits that we all adapted to because, because it makes sense, because it helps the business work. But when you challenge those assumptions, when you play, allow yourself to play with the rules, you can create many different types of business models. And maybe one more interesting thing, one more interesting point to say about business model innovation is that a study that was completed quite some time ago, I think that around uh, 2008 or 2010 shows that um, the most productive way, uh, the most efficient way uh, to invest in innovation will be not around product or product performances or supply chain, but around business model innovation. Okay, it's not only the lowest inv investment uh, compared to the results that you get from a good business model, it's also the fastest way to get that money back. Yet, most companies in the world focus most of their innovation efforts around two parts, products or services and productivity, which is great, it's important, you should do that, but missing on business model innovation doesn't make any sense to me. So, when I'm, when I'm presented with a challenge like that, um, the, the, the two immediate uh, uh, elements that I would consider is, first of all, let's explore and see what type of uh, fixedness we have associated with, 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 this, with this problem. And the second part that I would, uh, I would look at will be uh, challenging some of the assumptions associating with the existing business, business models that we have and applying some thinking tools and creating new, new breeds or new configurations of business models and then use the, the, the wisdom and the expertise in the, in the room and try and quickly see if, if, if they make sense. And many times, you, you, in a relatively short time, you not only uh, come up with, with amazing insights on you know, things that you're doing just because everybody else is doing it and they're redundant, uh, but also with, with better possibilities. 
let me let me ask you this then. And going back to the business model innovation, you know, you're absolutely right. There's not going to be a whole lot of businesses that if you were to ask them, hey, let me see the rule book that you work out of and in which what your business is based out of that they're going to be able to show you what they've come up with. You know, I mean, I, I would say a lot of small businesses might barely have a business plan that they can revert back to. So for the four small businesses that don't have this kind of rule book now, how do you, how, how do you then move forward with, you know, with these companies that you can't even, you don't, you don't even have a baseline of a rule book to, to go off of. I hope it's okay to say, but this is relatively an easy part because okay. our starting our starting point at SAT is always the existing situation. Um, you don't expect people to come up with ideas and solutions based on nothing, on goodwill. Uh, not only that, uh, talking a little bit about the cognitive process, um, our brain can work very, very fast when it has a very clear starting point. Um, it's called cognitive anchor. Once you have a cognitive anchor, you can quickly consider many possibilities, options, scenarios. Uh, you can run many simulations in, in a heartbeat just, just by having a clear starting point. Um, on, on, on the contrary, when you ask people to just come up with an idea, just invent something, it's kind of brainstorming style, a lot of time is wasted on finding this, this uh, uh, cognitive anchor, and then starting to, to think fast. So our thinking process always start with the existing situation. One big reason is because of that, because you want to make thinking more effective. Second is because this is what people understand. This is what people already know and own. So it's very easy for them to evaluate and compare new possibilities versus the existing one, okay? So mm -hmm. we respect mm -hmm. what you already have. The, the, you never look at the existing situation as something bad that needs to be sure. dismissed or, or, or revolutionized. We have something, it's working. Now let's use that as a springboard to other possibilities and, uh, and uh, opportunities. Okay. All right. So we have fixedness and business model innovation. If you're looking at then this problem number one, where small businesses do take out some kind of loan, but yet in considering what opportunities that can come about in terms of, let's say, eliminating waste inefficiencies. You want to consider the fixedness of your your business. And again, that or, or actually more more the fixedness of the individual, right? Not really of the business. So I think, first of all, fixedness applies to all um, to all circles. It's, it's we all fixated personally. Uh, there's a fixedness on the organizational level, of course. And uh, there's a fixedness on, on the industry or the category level. So in that sense, fixed, fixedness is, is common. Um, it's common. It's also common among competitors. And if in today's world where competition becomes so tough, the name of the game is differentiation. If you think like your competitors, you're very likely to come up with the same type of ideas and solutions that they will come up with. Hmm. On the other hand, if, if you find a different thinking algorithm, you're more likely to come up with different search results results um, in, in your quest to uh, uh, for new solutions. Um, I, I, I'm trying very carefully not um, to come across as someone who can offer solutions to the problems you presented because, again, uh, I, in this case, I'm a process expert. I, I, I know how to manage 
the thinking process well, uh, so so content experts can come up with their their ideas. Uh, but at the same time, I can't resist the temptation to share maybe two or three possible uh, uh, ways of looking at it. So um, from the fixedness point of view, I would ask, I would I would probably raise the following questions: um, If if budget is limited and uh, we need to eliminate waste. Uh, let's redefine what waste is. Um, actually, this week I'm working with a with a large uh, food company um, who's uh, investing amazing efforts in turning some of its waste into raw materials for adjacent industries, uh, which is again kind of a really nice way to look at. Uh, at waste. Um, if I look at uh, business model innovation, um, I would ask, you know, at the moment as a car owner uh, and a car user, uh, there are basically two options for me. One is to own my car uh, and the other one is to lease it. Um, I was wondering if there are any, you know, if it'd be interesting to explore the, the benefits in creating a new business model that will be some kind of a co-ownership with the dealer. I don't know, could that work? Under which circumstances this could actually be a, a great idea? Uh, could we think of uh, payback loyalty programs? Um, under which specific circumstances this is, this is something we can, we can actually benefit from? Looking at, uh, again, at car dealerships, uh, I would ask if, you know, maybe a, a possible business model to experiment with would be that uh, uh, instead of being a, a car dealer, uh, you'll be some kind of a, a, a transportation broker and you will take care of all my mobility needs, whether it's uh, cars, trains, buses, uh, plane, uh, taxis. But, you know, instead of spreading my, 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 uh, my, my money all around, I can just pay to you and, and you take care of it. So, again, maybe these ideas sound ridiculous or maybe they were already uh, thought of, but when I think business model innovation, I'm creating a list of possibilities and I try to answer one very simple and very powerful question. And that is under which unique circumstances this could actually be a brilliant idea. I love <clears throat> I love those ideas about the dealership model. I, as a matter of fact, uh, on a follow-up recording, I'll be speaking with the executive vice president of Cox Automotive, Dale Pollack in which that's kind of one of the things that we're going to be talking about specifically as it relates to the used car industry and how, you know, with used cars, there's there's a significant supply in the wholesale market, but demand, as we all know, is, is down with all retailers. But, you know, is there such an innovation that can be had where there are more flexible ownerships, flexible ownership models, and this is this is already starting to 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 come about now. But in light of the economic crisis, I think that you probably will start to see some of the winners and, and losers of that type of business model. I, I, just to build on what you're saying, I think that uh, again, what we all do very professionally and very responsibly uh, is continuously trying to predict the next step or the next way the market is yeah. going to behave and make sure that uh, that will be good players there, or will be the best players. Um, for me, this is a very important thing or fundamental thing to do. Um, on top of that, uh, when it comes to business model innovation, 
it's not only about being the best player in the existing game, it's also about changing the game uh, that, that will, you know, in my favor. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think that strategically, philosophically, um, and, and economically, companies are not investing enough efforts there yet. It's also important to say that, uh, that these efforts are not big, complicated, expensive. These are only thinking exercises. Uh, it only takes, you know, one or two think tanks, small teams that meets, you know, every other week for a couple of hours, but they invest their thinking efforts and capabilities in these directions. Okay. All right, let's go to the second problem here. Second problem that we're looking at are small businesses are faced with reinventing themselves by introducing technologies and automations that will reduce their labor force. Instead of hiring 100 employees coming out of COVID-19, businesses that adopt automations may only need to hire 50 employees. So should businesses adopt automation first and fill the employee gap later? Or should businesses start, you know, with the end in sight and then reverse engineer their, their operation, essentially? So the answer to the question is yes. In other words, uh, there's no or here. You do both. You do both plus, plus anything else you can do to find your, the best configuration that works for you. Um, I, I don't really believe, I strongly believe in, in standardization, but I don't... Uh, you, you, you firmly believe in what now? Standardization. Standardization, okay. I strongly believe in uh, standardization. I don't believe that much in one size fits all. And I, I think that when it comes to um, making changes, when it comes to innovation, when it comes to uh, um, uh, continuous improvement, uh, you have to be opportunistic about it. There's absolutely no reason for you to choose uh, uh, just one one direction to go, and, and you should evaluate all possibilities. So that's that's one one comment that I have. Uh, another thing is that in, in one of the characteristics of innovative idea or solution is what we call specificity. Um, uh, normally, when we encounter a problem, we look for a solution, we want something as generic as possible. We want one solution that we apply uh, across the board, every time, everywhere, which is great. But when you study ideas and solutions that are perceived as very innovative or inventive or, uh, or uh, uh, creative, um, you find a very strong element of specificity. Uh, this solution will only work for this company, for this product line, and for this year. The more specific your solution is, the more innovative it is perceived as. So part of the thinking process will be to try and find those very specific solutions. Now, there are already a lot of ongoing efforts in the world regarding automation. And I, again, there's no need to reinvent the wheel if there's a really good, reliable one that you can buy off the shelf. Um, I think that what I see companies do uh, are two things. First of all, um, the focus is on, on skill sets. So instead of looking at, at employees' functions that could be easily replaced in some cases by automation, 
you look at their skill set and you try to create or complement their existing skill sets with other skills that uh, that can keep them in the system, still rely on their loyalty, expertise, familiarity with the business yeah. and with the company, uh, their alignment with the with company values and culture. You don't want to give these away, okay? So uh, this is one direction. The other direction is that we have to remember that uh, when you uh, when you lose uh, team members for automation, you have to hire new people to fulfill these new positions. Uh, you need people who now with expertise on automations and operations and programming and, and uh, data knowledge, knowledge management uh, and data analysis. And sometimes you, you can help existing employees to acquire those needed skills and keep them in the system. So again, for me, it's not either or, it's both. I mean, I, I think that's a, a, a very good delineation in which um, I know myself, I've, I've kind of never looked at it in that sense, where a lot of times small businesses will think of automating the processes so that it serves the customer as opposed to automating the processes to fit your existing employees or per, perhaps the employee culture that you want to create. So I, I think that's a, a very different way of looking uh, about bringing in automations into a business. I agree. And um, I think I grew up in a world that, that is basically customer centric. Um, and I keep reminding myself that as much as I'm proud of, you know, our products or services or delivery, um, this will not happen if we will not be around. Um, so for me, caring for your brand and for your business is as important as caring for your your clients. All right, so I want to break up a little bit of the monotony of uh, these problem solvers. So uh, I I did have there's a couple of people that submitted some questions in advance, and and uh, for those that that are in attendance, if you do have a question, uh, either uh, type it in, or again you can save it till the very end. So uh, this is Brent from Fullerton, California. And he says, um, I help run my dad's dental business, and I fear that we will have to see less patients in a given day in order to adhere to the social distancing measures. If we are seeing less patients in a day, then we will have to push back a lot of appointments. How can I ensure that by pushing back appointments that I do not lose our existing patients to other offices? That's that. That's interesting. I mean, uh, I think that actually is a problem that I actually, I, I certainly haven't thought about um, myself. And that is, you know, with with the social distancing measures for all the small businesses, the retailers that are bringing people back in to their shop to their store, there's there's going to be a max capacity now that businesses are going to be you know required to handle, which means that the people that aren't being serviced next week, tomorrow kind of thing, right now, they may find alternative businesses to go to. How, how, would, you, how would you advise on this particular, for Brent? So uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to uh, quickly offer solutions, um, I, but I want to start with, with, with a provocation. Um, I want to say upfront that it's important to remember that not every problem is solvable. Um, 
you 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 learn that when you uh, when you do a lot of problem solving. Uh, it also has some kind of a, a humility factor. It reminds you that you know sometimes you have to know where where to stop. Um, so that's one point, and the other point: some problems it doesn't pay to solve, uh, and and this is something mm -hmm. that uh, that it's important to understand upfront. And many times uh, when I work with with a team on solving problems, we will start by asking two questions. First of all, what are the constraints? Uh, uh, what 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 is the limits of our influence or control? Because coming up with ideas and solutions that you have no way of implementing is just create frustration. Um, and, and the other question that I would ask, how much are we willing to invest in a solution? Uh, if it means that I need to turn my business uh, upside down and, and you know, get involved in, in adventures that I might not survive, maybe it doesn't pay. So having said that, that not every problem has a solution, it not always pay to solve a problem. Um, again, I would, I would start by challenging some assumptions. First of all, can we provide shorter treatment? Can we take some of the treatment, have uh, conduct some of the treatment in the clinic and some of it somewhere else, whether it's the patient's house or a close by different clinic, maybe you know any other health facility that, that meets the, the basic health standards? Um, can we break the treatment itself into smaller parts? This is another thing that I see in the, mostly I think in the last year, uh, it's, an, it's a trend that I think I spot, I don't know yet, uh, and I'm very happy about it, that more and more people and organizations, after describing or defining the problem, uh, uh, make another small effort and fragment, fragmentizing the problem, trying to break it into yeah. the tiniest pieces possible. And many times this by itself gives you more degrees of freedom. And this is, this is the same thing that I will do here. I will map uh, the treatment process step by step, and step by step means really high resolution. Um, uh, and then look at every step and ask myself, what can I change here? Uh, either in the way I do it, where I do it, how I do it, who is delivering it. Maybe it's something that's not done by me. Maybe something that, as a caretaker, uh, I used to do on my own, and it, it you know, a combination of. 30 or 40 different actions now can be designated to others. Uh, mm. So this is the way I look at it. I will, I will break it down into pieces and I will challenge the, the, the associated assumptions. Yeah. Okay. I like that fragmentation part. Okay. So let's, uh, let's go to the third problem here. Third problem, we're going to be looking at uh, supply chain. So manufacturers will have the decision to alter their supply chains. Suppliers may be relocated out of China. Manufacturers may find suppliers in new locations. And even still, manufacturers may optimize existing supply chain operations. So again, we're looking at uh, either relocating suppliers, finding new suppliers, or just optimizing the supply chain. So Ed, as for you, you are on the board of let's say Ford Motor Company here, and they're bringing this problem to you. What's, what are you, what is your response back to them? Uh, just as a, as a, a trivia point, uh, Ford, Ford Motor Company, company was the, one well, I think the first company that uh, adopted the SAT methodology, mm. I think more than 20 years ago, uh, 
and, and as part of their uh, innovation process. That was way back. So uh, Ford is already using uh, SAP, okay. which is great. Happy, happy to be on, on the board. Um, <laughs> when it comes to supply chain, uh, I think that the good news is that supply chain is one of the areas that most benefited from advanced technology in the last 20 years. It's just a revolution what's happening in supply chain management from, from basic uh, business models all the way to uh, management control, supply chain, uh, margin management, procurement. It's, it's, it's really uh, you know, state-of-the-art technology. At the same time, uh, and I mentioned that earlier, uh, most companies will focus their innovation efforts on, on products and services and product performances and not on areas such as accounting, legal, supply chain. Uh, and technology doesn't replace or substitute innovation. Okay? It's not, only, it's not only what you do, it's how you do it, it's how you approach it. Um, and there's a lot to be done uh, on supply chain innovation. It's, I don't want to say it's a quick, a quick win, but I want to say that because it's very well managed um, and well structured, there's a lot of fixedness there. Um, and I want to I, I want to start by uh, by sharing two two things. One is one specific type of fixedness that uh, uh, that we all benefit or suffer from, and the second one maybe some examples on what happened when when you do play a little bit. Uh, uh, responsibly, of course, uh, with supply chain when it comes to innovation. So uh, one of the four types of cognitive fixedness that we all have called structural fixedness. Structural fixedness is our tendency to perceive things as a whole. Uh, we don't really like or we find it hard to imagine things looking and performing differently than what we're already accustomed to. Uh, if uh, if our listeners uh, are uh, old enough uh, to remember what what is an icebox, um, that's that you know try and put that image in front of you. Icebox was the grandfather of of modern refrigerator. It was basically a box with two compartments. The top smaller one um, was a, a container that you put in an ice cube or an ice block, um, and and the uh, the bottom one was larger. And there was an opening in between, and since cold air tend to flow down, uh, you store your produce in the uh, large uh, compartment, and they kind of benefit from the cold air that flows down from the ice block. Um, and they were designed to do exactly that. When you look at modern refrigerators, I think about 80% of modern refrigerators are designed along the lines of ice box. Hmm. And there's absolutely no reason for that. There's absolutely no reason to have that fixedness on the designer or the, the refrigerator manufacturing companies. And there's absolutely no reason for us to accept this fixedness as consumers. Why we all have, or 80% of us, have the same type, I don't want to use any, any, any uh, uh, aesthetic characteristics, have the same bulky box at the corner of uh, of our kitchen looking the same way. Or you know what? Some of them are really adventurous, and I'm, and I'm being cynical here, and they flip the order. So you have the freezer on the bottom and not on the top. But right. that's it. Okay? So th this is a good example for structural fixedness. And we have that fixedness 
when we design products, when we design processes, um, and, and we offer services. And supply chain is one of those processes that, that you know, characterized by this, uh, by this structural fixedness. I'm not saying suffer from structural fixedness, because fixedness have a very strong positive effect. Fixedness is designed to help us um, orient and, and, and think very quickly. So when you talk with a, with a supply chain expert, they, they find their way around very quickly and intuitively because of that fixedness. It's a good thing. The only time in our life that fixedness gets in the way is when you want to invent something new. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so, so when it comes to supply chain, there are a lot that we can do just by breaking that structural fixedness that we, that we have uh, inherently. Um, and and to, to give, you know, maybe two or three small examples of what happened when you do that, um, I want to start with a medical device company that we've been working with for many years now. Okay. Um, we yeah. work with them on supply chain, and one of the things that they were uh, bringing to the table is um, uh, uh, contracts, with uh, the annual contracts that you sign with, with your vendors. Okay. And usually contracts kind of look the same. You usually arm wrestle the same characteristics of the, or the same attributes of the corners. It's, it's uh, uh, payment terms and costs and, and delivery times, etc. cetera. Um, and and using, using some of the SAT tools, uh, at the end of the process, they came up with some, some ideas that were really easy to test and, and figure out under which specific circumstances this is actually brilliant. Uh, for some of the uh, some of the raw materials, they changed the relationships with the suppliers. Uh, they created a bidding system, and now it's not about you know um, pitching and wasting everybody's time on going over long and detailed contracts. There's a very simple uh, uh, bidding system. Uh, in other case, they decided to own the molds for the parts that they need to be manufactured for them. So from the supplier point point of view. This is a much easier effort. You get the molds, you get the tooling, you get the templates. All you need to do is basically manufacture, which makes it much easier for you in terms of logistics, in terms of um, uh, 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 settings, uh, line settings, uh, training employees, etc. So by shifting part of the part of the supply chain elements between different vendors and the company, this this was a game changer. Um, Another example uh, was we, we've been working with a company called Havi Logistics. Uh, it's one of the largest uh, uh, movers, uh, shipping companies uh, in the world. And um, one, of the, one of the challenges that they brought to the table was, uh, uh, again, part of their supply chain was that when, uh, when a ship gets to port and needs to quickly unload and reload a lot of containers, that needs to be then quickly trucked to uh, to the next step in, in the business chain. Uh, the bottleneck was the time that it takes to unload a ship. You need crane operators and you need forklift uh, operators. Mm -hmm. um, and they work as fast as they can. But in any case, you end up with a very long line of trucks uh, parking from the, from the docking uh, uh, stations all the way to the port gates, waiting for their turns and wasting many long hours. Mm -hmm. Now, a common solution will be, you know, buy more forklifts, 
uh, buy more, uh, invest in more cranes, and train and hire more operators. Now, this is a very logical solution. The problem is, or the downside is, what do you do with these people when, when, when the ship is gone? When it's done? They're still on your payroll, you still have to pay maintenance and employee benefits, and you know, there's kind of a slack here or a waste that you maybe don't want to create. One of the ideas that they came up with and implemented successfully is that they offer the truck drivers that own uh, 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 that are certified operators of forklifts or cranes to actually instead of waiting in line to jump in and uh, and help. Now mm. in this case, everybody is happy. You don't have more uh, more people on your headcount. Uh, you're only getting those people to help in peak times. And for the drivers, instead of complaining on wasted time, this is a quick and easy way for them to make an extra buck. And of course, they're highly motivated to work fast because they want to they wanna get as fast as they can to their truck, their place in line, and, and move on. So these are two examples that when you look at supply chain, you understand that there's a lot you can do. Maybe one last example, something, again, that for me, it makes a lot of sense to consider and maybe uh, maybe it's already being addressed in the in the car industry, and maybe not. Uh, is last mile assembly or last fifty mile assembly? Do we have to assemble all parts of a car on the assembly line, or can we think of a reverse uh, supply chain where where each member of the supply chain put yet add another component to the final product instead of everything getting to the same time? and having being assembled in one place. Now, maybe, maybe this is a really bad idea, but I will accept that as a bad idea only after I can see uh, good reasons why and when we should have it, and then the challenges. Yeah, I mean, that kind of speaks back to the fragmentation, right, of, uh, of, of, that, of that question of uh, the dental office, right? If you could fragment some of the services, then potentially you, you, you're, you, you have the ability to, to maintain your customers still without having to lose them. And also back to your point of the, the contract negotiation, again, these are speaking to points that are, there are these agreements that are already set up with your suppliers. And rather than perhaps finding a new supplier, maybe you're just going back to the actual contract and just renegotiating something that is already there, right? Again, this kind of speaks to that whole fixedness part. These are these are elements that within a, a, a business that you have these set models. And if you can just look to deviate from those set models, that could be the the small innovation that could change everything for you. And, and again, that's there, there was no additional cost to you to have to bring on new products, new services, new labor force, n- nothing like that. So not only, not only that, we, we talk in, uh, we talk in recent years, a lot about co-creation uh, okay. and co-creation is, is being applied in most cases by, by sending ideas back and forth between suppliers uh, and vendors and, and the company. Um, from our experience, uh, it pays to have teams going through the ideation process together. Uh, I think, I, I, I hope I'm right, but I think that uh, our, the first client that approached us with this, with, with this idea was uh, Tetrapec. That was, I think, 15 or, or more years ago. And they realized that as a main supplier, if their clients will do better, they will do better. 
So they decided to sponsor or co-sponsor um, uh, innovation uh, projects for their clients, uh, making sure that they have you know, their people in the room participating and being able to quickly uh, suggest solutions, technologies, materials, uh, packaging uh, uh, machinery and expertise to, to be able to assess these ideas very fast. I'm sure that uh, in the automotive industry, uh, this is being done. I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of collaboration going on. Um, the only thing that I'm hoping is that these, these collaboration efforts are done uh, in ways and, and, and using tools and methods that prove themselves to be very productive. Yeah, and uh, you know that one one more thing to add to this, and I was just thinking of uh, perhaps I, I'm going to patent this idea if it's a good one. If you sign off on it, and that is, you know, with all these small businesses that do have these relationships and these vendors, perhaps one of the innovative ideas to alter the contract in in coming out of COVID nineteen is that perhaps with every contract now. Uh, maybe there is once a month a meeting that internally the staff has, but now all the vendors must also be on that so that those vendors are part of the business so they can, if they don't contribute ideas, at least they know what's going on and it, it just helps ingrain the, that, that relationship with the vendor even more so. Is, would you sign off on that idea? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I, Again. I get the credit for that one though, yeah? Yeah, it's yours. It's yours. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I have to tell you, uh, in my line of business, uh, uh, it's so exciting to be there when other people come up with these brilliant ideas or genius solutions. It's not about, it's not about me inventing. I don't care for that. Uh, just being there and looking that facial expression um, and knowing that this is addictive. Once you go it through a process... Yeah. Once you go through a process uh, that that gear you up with the abilities and and the, the the proof that you can actually be as as creative as as the people you admire, it's you 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 don't want to let go. I hear you on that. Okay, uh, so let's get to the last problem here. So the last problem we have is. Some founders who have endured other economic crises may not have the energy to climb out of this current economic crisis. It may be time to pass the buck to family or next-in-line executives. Founders may be stubborn about losing control, and other stakeholders may not want to broach this subject. All in all, passing ownership control will not be an easy task. I, I think it, it, it never it never is an easy task. It's it, 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 Inherently, it's, you know, generation gap is not something you only experience with your parents when you're young or with your kids when you're old. It's also a part of business. Um, and um, I have to say that the first time I, I encountered that was, uh, I think, about six or eight years ago, working with uh, Tata Motors in, in India. Hmm. Uh, we were actually, Tata actually asked us to develop uh, some kind of a toolkit um, that is designed exactly for those small businesses in their ecosystem on the um, on the selling side and on the supplier side and see if they somehow using that kit can help smooth that transition. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm aware of this. Um, I have to say, first of all, this is never easy. 
there, there are two, I think, uh, two points to consider. One, um, many times we, when we think about this transition, we think that we have to have a strategy for that, meaning we have to have a clear or well-defined uh, pathway uh, from getting from the existing situation to the desired situation. Um, it's good sometimes, uh, but because many times you look at a smaller scale and many times uh, you have uh, uh, you have variables uh, that have a stronger impact on decision-making, uh, you have more limited resources, uh, committing to one strategy could be limiting or even paralyzing. You sometimes find yourself stuck. And I think that what I would suggest in a situation like that is not, not ignoring strategy, but putting it aside for a minute and maybe uh, creating a list of criteria and values. So I would ask, the, again, the team that I work with, I would ask them to make a short list of what are the most important values for them to have at the end of the way, okay? What is it that we care for? What is it important that is important for us, okay? Or, and in that sense, how would we value our success? Not, not, not in terms of of quantity, but in terms of quality, okay? So that is one list. And the other list that I would ask them to create is a list of criteria, okay? What are, what, what are the business filters that every action, idea, direction, um, or application must comply with? And these are the filters. And by using those two lists, I would replace strategy. In other words, Everything that comes in our way, whether it's an, an idea from a customer, whether it's an offer from a, a vendor, whether it's a trend in the market, we quickly measure against these two lists. If it supports our values and meet our requirements, we will do it. This is, I think, the key, um, the key uh, uh, perspective of opportunistic innovation. You don't limit yourself to just one way of going, but instead, you follow your passion and your desire, and at the same time, you commit to business standards and business uh, uh, criteria, and you allow yourself flexibility. Now, so this is one thing, one element that, that I would recommend. The second one um, is to create that consensus building type of dialogue within the team, okay? We all feel that we know how to talk to each other, we all feel that, you know, um, we have the necessary tools. Again, if you require different types of dynamics that will lead to different types of behavior and different type of results, you have to facilitate those conversations differently, not based on what you already used to or based on, you know, common sense. The last point that I want to make uh, is that any effort that we're trying to make regarding this specific problem must be uh, uh, focused, short, and economically justified. You can't find yourself in an adventure, diving into an adventure that will be too long or will spread out or will be too expensive. It needs to be, you can't go through, you know, a two years process now with, 
a business consultant, an organizational development consultant, and a marketing consultant. Not, not because these consultants don't have important stuff to contribute. It's just it's too long and it's too, complica too complicated for a small business. It has to be kind of a, a quick move, very smart and very safe. Yeah, I, I do think that when you're drawing out a, you know, I don't want to say that you're drawing out a problem, but if you're, if if you're trying to pass over ownership and it's going to be a two year process, there's just so many things that can, there's so many variables that can go wrong in which then perhaps something that's involved in the negotiation process are these out clauses and then, you know, nothing ever gets done and yeah, therefore, then the business may continue to suffer potentially because, again, uh, you know, the, the problem here is that I, I know for certain that there are businesses that they do have the founder that's still at the head and there's, you know, specifically sons and daughters that are looking to take over the business, but the father does not want to relinquish that control. And so there's that gradual process of how do you pass over ownership? And if that gets drawn out over two years, it's it's probably not going to be good for 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 the personal and professional relationship. So, uh, first of all, I, I want to just for a second take uh, take the conservative side and say that yes, we're all familiar with the situation when when the founders are kind of holding on to their way of seeing the business, um, and the younger generation is trying to you know loosen up a little bit and modernize it, etc. Um, I have to take for a moment the 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 owner side and say that. The reason why the business is doing well or was doing well so far is probably due to their, uh, to the original intentions and way of looking at it. And people with a lot of experience have a lot of valuable knowledge. The fact that you're older doesn't mean that, that every radical thought of or every extremely passionate and enthusiastic, uh, son or daughter know better. So in that sense, I give equal value to both. Uh, parties. I also think that uh, you were talking about transferring ownership over two years. For me, um, um, the idea of ownership is something that we can play with. The different mm -hmm. types of ownerships and mm -hmm. it gives us more degrees of freedom. And time is something that we can play with. But yeah, uh, other than that, it, it, you, as a small business, you can't afford long, expensive processes. And you definitely, especially if it's a family business, you can't afford frustration and friction. It's as important as business success. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the ec excellent points on just defining ownership, and that kind of goes back to the criteria part of, you know, what are what's the criteria that everyone here is wants to accept or what's required. And sometimes that is just clearing up what the terminology is being used because certainly let's say in the case of a familial uh, of a family business ownership to the founder may not be what it is to the son or daughter and again maybe it's just that clarification of what ownership means that that could solve the problem there so okay so uh, i do have then just one last question that was submitted and and again uh, I'll, there's one more opportunity for for the folks that are uh, are on this call uh, or are on this recording if you want to chime in now now is the time so this comes from um, Chris from Austin Texas and he says I recently got a call from the dealership that I used to work at and they are wanting to hire me back but I'd like to see some changes to how we keep track of inventory because there's a lot of unnecessary work 
and most of it is duplicated work. I need the job, but I really like to suggest my ideas. Any advice? Wow. Uh, <laughs> be polite, be respectful, be uh, persistent. Uh, but, but this is just, you know, kind of an intuitive advice. Um, there, there are two, again, two points that I could, I could think of here. One is uh, if Chris is going back to work, I'm sure that there's some kind of a work agreement or a contract. Um, for some reason, there's this, that's another type of fixedness, by the way, for some reason why normally uh, the relationship that we have is that we're the company setting the contract and you as an employee have very little room, if any, to negotiate. Yeah. Um, there's absolutely no reason, especially now or in the last five, six years, when workforce uh, uh changes. People are perceiving their workplace differently. Uh, we have different experiences. We have different um, measurements and scales to, to, set, to, to, to measure our satisfaction and our rewards, etc. So for me, if you can't conduct uh, a good dialogue with your future employee uh, on, on, on the contract, if they tell you, no, this is set, this is legal, you take it or leave it, then at least you know what you're getting yourself into. And if the company wants you, they should also benefit from that dialogue. There's probably a good reason why, why they want you in. Uh, so that's, that's one point. Another point is that uh, there are many different strategies of promoting uh, ideas in the company. Uh, we're all familiar with the uh, famous story of 3M, 3M post-it notes. The guy was just you know, distributing his solutions to some of the secretaries in the company and they fell in love with the product. The company had no way out rather than accept it. I was involved in a, um, in a stock control uh, uh, management uh, project in the Philippines uh, some, times ago, some time ago. Um, and the, the people who, the two people who were championing this, this initiative, the company didn't want it. By the way, the company didn't want this uh, to, to uh, check this solution because they were very religiously following Six Sigma. So everything was fully documented, fully uniformed. Uh, there was no way to kind of try and, and fit something different in. And these guys just consistently uh, arguing for an experiment. We're not asking anyone to change. We don't think that our idea is better. We just want an experiment. We just want a very small, very limited pilot, okay? And, you know, just make, that was one, one strategy that worked for them. But there are other, other stories like that. People find different ways to kind of bring something about without breaking the rules, without, you know, uh, disrespecting uh, authority and organizational structure, etc. Yeah, okay, good. I like it. Well, Edis, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate your time and I appreciate uh, you helping, you know, me even uh, think through some of these problems. Uh, the, I, I think the, the one biggest takeaway is that word that uh, has come up time and time again, and that's the idea of fixedness. And, and I'm, I, I don't know, I, there's just so many things now I want to look at within not only my business, but in other people's business uh, in what are, what are the things that are fixed or 
what are the fixedness elements of their business? You know, what are the adaptive parts or the acquired parts? What are the cognitive parts? And just seeing if, if there's the little things that can be tweaked amongst that. And again, like that's, that could, that's the easy stuff, right? Like people can look like geniuses if they just fix those little parts. So to, to build on that, I think that we all, we were all conditioned in the last uh, 20 years when innovation became, you know, almost a religious, a religion that everybody's like admire. We were all conditioned to only respect or focus on the big radical game changes. Yeah, right. These right. are very rare. And I can tell you, uh, from looking at companies and in the last at least 17 years for me all over the world, uh, when you build your innovation strategies on breakthroughs, you usually don't succeed. Uh, when you look around you, there's more innovation that was created by small fragmented pieces by engineers, not by, you know, creative hippie style geniuses uh, <laughs> all over, everywhere. No, seriously, everywhere. Yet we look at the, you know, we look at the Steve Jobs and not on the guy who helped design the, the cap of the diaphragm of the microphone we're both using to communicate now. And there's a lot of innovation there. Um, so, yes, uh, at the end of the day, it's more of the ongoing, continuous innovation rather than the, the big breakthrough ones that, 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 that change the game. Good. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Wisco Weekly, and thank you to the live audience that tuned in for this first ever recording. I appreciate you guys. Uh, we'll do, be doing more of these in the coming year as we end every episode. Cheers, prost, lachaim, kipis, nastravi, salud, kampai, mabruk, tutsins, gambe, yamas, nastarovie, salute, and vo to the customer experience. Wisco Weekly listeners, thank you for tuning in with us to another hopefully great episode. Dennis and I are always grateful to have you along for our journey. Speaking of our journey, we've had the last few years, we've seen a lot of evolution with our show and in the industry. We are especially grateful for two of our partners, Automotive Mastermind and Commotion Miami, for coming along with us on this journey. If you are enjoying our show, please subscribe to our email list at wiscoweeklypod.com. We want to continue to bring you great content and can give you those updates if you subscribe to the email list. Please go to wiscoweeklypod.com. We look forward to connecting again soon.